five, scores! Rick Five. We've decided to get ourselves back in the game again with our podcast. Rick Five. Probably the craziest story that you're ever going to hear about hockey. We're going to be coming back to you on a regular basis. You are listening to Squid and the Ultimate Leafs fan. Hello, Canada and hockey fans of the United States and Newfoundland. And an extra big hello to Canadian servicemen overseas. Welcome, everyone, to episode 77 of the Squid and Ultimate Leaf Fan Show. I'm Mike Wilson, the Ultimate Leaf Fan. Joining me as always, my winger, Ricky Squid Vibe. Squid, how's things? Things are good, Mike. Can't complain. Nothing to complain about. <laughs> well, that, I, let's leave a rate at that, uh, you know, because it's, it's, it's the type of world we have now. If you can say those type of things on a daily basis, that's a good thing. Now... <laughs> <laughs> our guest today, so we're pleased to have our guest today coming on. He's very well known in the broadcasting world, having worked every outlet both in front and behind the camera, still does stuff today on TV and on the radio. He was executive producer of Hockey Night in Canada, a former panelist on Sportsnet, Leafs TV, won a sports Emmy for his work at the 2002 Salt Lake City Winter Games. I was there, worked in production for NHL Network, was part of the afternoon drive team on the Fan 590. Uh, and he still does a podcast with uh, his partner on that show, uh, Bob McCowan. We can pick up. We'll certainly be talking about that. But first off, we want to welcome to this Grindelwald fan show, John Shannon. John, first off, thanks for joining us. And how are you keeping these days? Busy, it sounds like. I'm, I'm doing great, Mike. Yeah, I know it's, uh, you know, the, uh, you, you now just, uh, you, you, you don't have to get in your car to work. You just uh, walk down to the basement. So it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a little... Uh, it's a little easier to do that, but yeah, no, I'm staying busy and life's uh, life's pretty good. I have very few complaints. So tell us about some of the things you're doing. You've got the podcast, so talk to us about that and how the listeners can find it. Uh, well, it's uh, it's on every uh, platform uh, going uh, w- when it comes to podcasts, and it's uh, it is named after uh, my partner. I, I I fought for it to be called the John Shannon Podcast, <laughs> but apparently that wouldn't draw very many people. So it's called the Bod McCowan podcast. Uh, and we, you know, uh, we actually do it Monday to Friday every day. Uh, so we have tried in many ways to replicate uh, the old primetime radio show. We only do it for uh, an hour now. It's also on Sirius XM on channel 167 every night at 6 p.m. So we do have pretty good distribution and we have pretty good listenership. And it's... Uh, I'd, I'd, I would tell you it's a labor of love, but uh, the fact is that we love money, so it becomes a labor of love. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's yeah. something Squid and I don't well, know too much about, right, Squid? Yeah, no kidding, yeah. Well, if no, it was actually, money, we're doing, we're we're doing pretty money. good. We're, do, we're doing pretty well. We, well uh, we, uh, we have about 300,000 uh, 300, um, uh, unique downloads a month right now. Um, that doesn't include what we have on YouTube. So it's, uh, the numbers are, uh, and their numbers are growing. The, the key thing as you guys know, is that you have to make sure you get a quality guest list. Um, and then McCowan's yeah. great skill of making sure that, uh, he gets the most out of his, uh, his guests. And, uh, every once in a while I get to chime in and ask a question. <laughs> well, well talk, talk about the radio and TV work you're still doing. Well, I, I, you know, I, I left, uh, I'm trying to, uh, the, the pandemic you, you've is kind of made time a bit of a mush yeah. uh, for all of us. But, uh, so I, I left Sportsnet in, um, August of 2019, uh, but I was able to maintain some radio and TV in Winnipeg, Edmonton and Vancouver. So I, I do, um, regular gigs in Vancouver on, on two different shows, um, one with the uh, Matt Sakaris and Blake Price, and the other one uh, with uh, Don Taylor and Rick Dollarwall. Uh, so that's twice a week. Uh, I also have a uh, a regular turn uh, on Oilers Today with Bob Stoffer on Mondays and Wednesdays, and I have a, a deal with the Chorus uh, Radio and TV station CGOB and Global in in Winnipeg um, that I do weekly stuff in and around the the Jets. So. I, I have to stay abreast of all three Western Canadian teams, which is easy for me. I, I'm a Nighthawk. I watch all those games. Uh, plus, I will be doing some games on Sportsnet uh, for the Oilers uh, in the new year. So it's uh, it's all worked out pretty well. 
of John. Um, I mean, we're going to get into everything that you did behind the camera, obviously, and the great work you did with uh, uh, Hockey Night in Canada and Leafs TV and everything. But what was it like for you going from behind the camera to being on the camera and, and you know, in a different role altogether? Oh, it's much easier being on camera than it is behind the scenes. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, When you're an announcer, I I used to, I I, I used to tease people like when behind the scenes, the amount of time you took, isn't that a lovely picture? That is nine. I can tell you right now that is 1980 Mm -hmm. in Calgary. Uh, That's the great Ed Whalen on the right-hand side. That's Jim Van Horn, who was our host uh, in Calgary uh, for our first few years to doing Flames games. And that's a guy named Len Ross on the left-hand side there. He was our, uh, he was the production manager of the local TV station we were doing games for. So that was, that is, I'm 23 or 24 years old in that picture. So I'm just a couple of years older now. And I was in charge of uh, producing hockey in Edmonton, Calgary, Winnipeg, and Vancouver at that point. But we had a great time uh, doing doing games regionally in the West for a long period of time, which is one of the reasons why my love of the West and, uh, and being able to do what I do on a regular basis for the three teams that are the four teams that are out there. So, um, but, but to go back to your original question, um, Ricky is, um, the amount of time you have to take to manage people as opposed to being one of the people managed. Uh, it's like the difference between 24 hours versus four hours. Uh, as a production person, you never stop thinking, you never stop managing, uh, you never stop planning. Uh, whereas if you're a commentator, uh, you you have a regular routine of gathering information and then executing a plan. There's some good pictures. Who got these pictures? I, they're better pictures than I have. That's that. I tell you what, that is in London at the Memorial Cup with my pals Merrick and Kiprios. Uh, and that was a Memorial Cup won by the Edmonton Oil Kings. Uh, the goaltender on that team was Tristan Jari, uh, and uh, Curtis Lazar was the uh, was one of the stars of the Oil Kings. And Lazar is now playing for the Bruins, and Jari's the starting goaltender for the Pittsburgh Penguins. Well, speaking of production, oh, boy, I, I got to tell you, you, your memory is a hell of a lot better than mine. <laughs> but, well, and you know what? I'll tell. I will tell you right now. Um, I was blessed with a great memory and a great passion for the sport, and it has saved my butt millions and millions of times because you can re- if you can remember things you can tell a story and the ability mm-hmm. to tell a story i don't have to tell you rick because all those hours you spend on leafs tv doing it for us um if you can if you can weave a story and whether that's being a producer or a director uh or an announcer if you can weave a story then then you 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 can save your bacon every time and I, I would like to think that of all of my attributes, uh, the ability to weave a story like that is probably one of my best. Well, I was just going to say that behind the scenes work, you just put it right to a T there asking that question about those wonderful photographs come from courtesy of Glenn Dreyfus and Paul Patsko, who you know do monumental work. Well, Patsko, I don't even want to know, you know, but that, that's another <laughs> story. So. And that they do some really good work. So that's, that's from that. They sure so do. The, and uh, now, Johnny, let's go back to the beginning. Talk about your childhood years and how the media world became a part of your life. Well, uh, so I, I grew up, that that's me in the middle. That's my older brothers, Bob on the right, and my other brother, Ross, uh, on the left. Uh, we grew up in a, in a little town uh, 10 miles from the U.S.-Canada border in the Okanagan Valley called Oliver, B.C., where my dad was the high school principal. Uh, and... It was a, it was the, it was like living in Mayberry, boys. It was so much fun. Uh, and our parents uh, were very, very sports oriented. So we were always involved in things. We were always traveling. We were always going. It's about 220 miles to Vancouver from where I grew up, 200 miles to Spokane, 250 to Seattle. So we, we were always on the go going to sporting events going to BC Lions games, going to Canucks games, going to Spokane to watch the junior team or the, or the senior men's team at, at one point. So there was always something going on in our house when it came to sports. And Saturday nights was a great tradition. 
Uh, it was the only time of the week that we could watch television and have dinner at the same time. Remember, we're in Pacific time then, so mm-hmm. hockey started. Let me get this straight. So when I was when I was really young, hockey started at six o'clock, and you prayed for a fight uh, to happen so you could get the last three minutes of the first period. Then they changed it to five thirty, so you got half the first period. And then uh, by the time I was uh, ten or eleven years old, they went to uh, you got to see the whole game, which is no different than what you would remember, Mike, as a, as yep. a kid living in Toronto. Absolutely. So we had the same we had the same thing in in BC. So we would we would be able to watch the, uh, hockey night in Canada every Saturday uh, and wa- and eat dinner at the same time and that was that was the ultimate thrill and which made Saturday night so special at our house so i uh I and and it, living where we lived um uh, it, it was a great time in radio too uh, and and we we lived high in the mountains but about 1100 Feet in the air is where the elevation of my hometown. Uh, and you could get radio from Los Angeles, from San Francisco, obviously Seattle, Portland, Vancouver, uh, Salt Lake City, Denver. So uh, at nighttime, uh, you'd sit there with your transistor radio or the stereo in the living room and try to find a game on the radio. Uh, and that was as, that was as exciting as anything for me. Because uh, I fell in love with I fell in love with this business through that, and so by the time I was by the time I was 14 years old, I had my own radio show on Mondays and Friday mornings, a 15-minute sportscast about high school sports for our local high school, uh, and then uh, decided by the time I graduated high school, I wanted to be in broadcasting and. And that's how I got as a 17 year old, got to move to Toronto was, and go to Ryerson to go to school. Well, your first job was a runner at in 1977, I believe, as a yep. runner for Hockey Night in Canada. That's right. Who interviewed you and tell us what a runner does. <laughs> and by the way, uh, it might be the most fun job in the business mm-hmm. uh, because in those days, um, uh, the 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 hierarchy within the TV system was different than when I w- was running things. But so I, what I, what you ended up doing was I ha- you had to you had to find a way to get into Hockey Night in Canada. You had to you had to have a a thought to get in. Um, and so uh, one of the guys that I was living with was a guy named Doug Beforth, uh, who went on to great things at Hockey Night and and to CTV and to Sportsnet. Uh, and Doug was a couple of years ahead of me in school, and he had done a project on Hockey Night in Canada. Uh, and that got him a, a part-time job at, at, at Hockey Night as a, a runner and a, a statistician and a commercial coordinator. So I said, well, heck, I'm going to do the same thing. So, uh, but I did it a little differently because uh, you, could, you could tailor make your story. So I did it on Jim Robson who was the play-by-play voice of the Vancouver Canucks. And the great thing for me was that uh, between, if I, and I looked at the schedule and between games in Toronto and in Buffalo, um, I could follow Jim around at the odd and follow him around at Maple Leaf Gardens. And then I could go home for Christmas and follow him at a home game in Vancouver at the Pacific Coliseum. So I, it was, and it was, a let's face it, it was a great way to get into games. Yeah, it was a great way to be behind the scenes. So I, I got to be behind the scenes, did the project, had to get permission from Hockey Night to do the project. And the guy who who I, my contact there was a gentleman named Bob Gordon, who was the longtime regular producer for the Maple Leafs. And he said, yeah, sure, you can do it. But we have to be able to approve it, to look at it. And once they looked at it, I think they realized that I had a bit of talent and said, would you like to come and work for us in the following year? So that's in October of 77, when I started to work mm-hmm. um, as a runner. By the way, the other two runners with us were, were Beforth and a guy named Rick Briggs Jude. And, and it, we all lived together. And by the time at one point, uh, I was running Hockey Night. Uh, Rick was senior VP of production at TSN and Doug was running Sportsnet. So <laughs> we all did pretty well. Yeah, I'd say. <laughs> well, I, I would say that, that <laughs> that's not too bad. No. 
So what, where, what was the next step after that, John, for you as far as getting well, you know, so, up the ladder at Hockey Night in Canada? So I, I got, Ricky, I got really lucky. I was at the right place at the right time. Uh, I worked alongside Bill Hewitt for the most part and, and Brian McFarland. Bob Cole was around every once in a while. Danny Gall, I got to go to Montreal every once in a while too. I was still going to university. Uh, but I got to travel a little bit. Uh, I, I also uh, got to travel in the United States. Uh, we used to do a, a Saturday afternoon game uh, on a syndicated network in the United States. Uh, and so I got asked, would I like to go and work on those games? And so I would go to class on Friday morning. And then by two o'clock, I'd be at Pearson Airport flying somewhere uh, to work, still going to school, uh, to, to work on these games. And so I got to do that. Uh, but the key thing that goes back to is um, this was a time where there was very little research done, very little statistical information done for the broadcasters. And I, I realized that. I saw that, that Brian didn't have very much to work with other than a piece of paper that Stan Abodiak gave him that had goals and assists on it. So I, um, so I started to do my own research uh, on my own time with my own typewriter uh, and five by eight recipe cards. So I would do 10 five by eight recipe cards with four notes on them of statistical stories. Like, you know, Rick five uh, has eight goals in the last six games. That's 14 goals in the last. And so that McFarland and everybody thought McFarland did all the work. Well, we know that was bullshit. Um, (laughs) Sorry, Brian, but we, but we would, but I would, I I was the first guy in, in, in all these worlds to do that for them. So what happened was uh, about three weeks into the, that year, I started giving Brian these cards, these recipe cards. And then Dave Hodge turned to me and says, what are you doing? He said, well, I said, I'm doing some research. I've given it to Brian. He says, well, I want that stuff too. So now on my own, on my own volition, I had to go to Kinko's and get it photocopied. And I had to pay the $2.25 to get it photocopied because I mean, nobody at Hockey Night was going to help me. The How much are you making, by Saturday, the way? 10 bucks a game. I was making, oh no, but 10 bucks and, oh, a, and a, $10 a game and a baby blue jacket. And the baby blue jacket was worth thousands in my mind, thousands. Um, so, so that, and that's really how I got, that was the real icebreaker for me, for the whole office, for, for people say, well, this guy knows his hockey. He knows what to do. He, so that really was the, the turning point. Um, and again, right place at the right time, the WHA came in in 1979 they added the four teams, Hartford, Quebec, Winnipeg, and Edmonton. Calgary was coming to the NHL the following year. Um, and I remember sitting in the office. I, I was I was starting to work almost full time. Uh, and they said, uh, we have a we we want to send a producer to Western Canada who would who would want to move. Nobody would put their hand up. Nobody put their head up. That that picture that's a that's a long story too. Let me save that picture, Paul. Don't put that one up yet. Um, uh, not that I'm trying to produce the podcast or anything. Um, so uh, so the so the is this in, it's in your blood, John. I know, I know. But Patsco should know better. That's that picture is 1986. Um, so 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 1979. I started to produce games. Living in Toronto, I started to produce games. So in 1980, when they asked, would anybody like to move to Western Canada? This was this was like paradise to me. I, I was the only guy, the guy that put his hand up, said, I'll move. And I was I started to produce four and five games a week. One in Winnipeg, one in Calgary, one in Edmonton, one in Vancouver and somewhere on Saturday night. Uh, and it was the it was just it was indoctrination by fire. Uh, I probably didn't really know what I was doing. Uh, but I, I got to sit in that chair in the, in the TV mobile and, and produce hockey, uh, all the time. And it was really, that was the key to the ability of, of me to my career to expand. And, and it didn't hurt that, uh, the Calgary flames were really good. The Edmonton Oilers obviously are really good. And in 1982, the Vancouver Canucks went to the Stanley cup final. So I was at the right place at the right time when hockey was great in Western Canada. And that was, that was my real true break uh, now, be, in the business. 
Johnny, before we go to the next step, just one of the questions I wanted to ask you while, while you were ingraining yourself as a runner and moving up the ladder just slowly, what, and you had all this vision of moving forward in Hockey Night in Canada, what was the most surprising aspect of the media that you didn't think of but stood out almost immediately to you? I think you just touched on it with the research that these guys weren't doing, but was there anything in addition to that? Um, well, it, 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 it goes back to something um, that I, I was actually going to talk about, Mike, was uh, when I told you I, the runner had the best job. Mm-hmm. Um, the system in, in, in the late seventies was there was this, uh, it was a total pyramid and the producer was at the top of the pyramid. Uh, and the runner was on the base. There was no Mm -hmm. question about that, but the producer never talked to the players. The producer would say, uh, Hey John, we are going to talk to, uh, we're going to talk to, uh, Bob McGill at the end of the first intermission. So at five o'clock, when the Leaf players started to arrive for the eight o'clock game, uh, just double check with Bob that he's okay with that. So in the end, the low guy on the totem pole, the, the, the youngest kid ended up having the relationship with the players. Um, and so by the time, it, it, and, and, and by the way, those guys, a lot of those guys are still my friends because of that. You know, here we are 40, 45 years later, and I see those guys and they say, hi, John. And I say, hey, Daryl, you know, hey, Lanny, you know, uh, and, and that's that was to me was was the most unique part of what we did. And it was something that became part of my life as a producer, because I when I started to go to the truck, I would say the runner would say, well, I'll go talk to the player. I said, are you kidding me? I'm going to go talk to the player. Because I want the relationship with the player, because I want information from the player, and that really began the whole concept of much greater depth of reporting and storytelling about players was rela- the relationships they were able to create and the scoops we could get from guys and sit in. The, I mean, I, I, I mean, I hate, I still hate going to the dressing room, but. Uh, the morning skate, after the morning skate, before the pandemic, you could walk in the dressing room, sit at the locker beside a guy and have a conversation with him. And how many times, and Ricky, how many how many times did Frank Orr sit beside you and ask you great questions and you you had relationships with guys in the media because of it? And it, it yeah. became it became part of it became part of our life was maintaining and creating relationships with the players. Cause you got so much more out of them because it wasn't well the TV guys here and the hockey players there is that we're on the same page. We're on the same picture. And it really worked for me a, a great deal when I moved West again, uh, those guys in Calgary, uh, to this day, there are dozens of them that are great friends. Uh, Edmonton, there are pe- people that I have, I, I, I laugh about that somebody would talk about so-and-so I'd say, well, let's phone them. Well, you know, of course, I mean, we traveled together. We lived, we, you know, we worked together. We were there every day. We were in the arena. We talked to them. We created and built those relationships with people. Uh, and it made our, it made our shows better. And yeah. really that was what it was all about. Squid. Yeah. You could probably, uh, John, you could probably say that about the writers and, and everything too, because you're right. I mean, I can remember after a practice, like, you know, six, seven reporters in the room, sitting beside people, having conversations. And, and as you say, you develop relationships with these people over the years. And, you know, even today I run into some of the guys that are, they're not writing anymore, but right away we strike up a conversation and there's something to talk about. Absolutely. I mean, and that, that, and just that common sense being able to talk to people, changes the whole complexion of how you try to tell a story on the air or in print. Um, and, and, it, and, but when I started, that really wasn't the case. It was the, the youngest guy. I mean, the youngest guy on the show was the guy talking to the players, not the producer or the director. Uh, and obviously the commentators did a little bit, but not near as much as we did in the, as, and, and as Rick will tell you, I, I, as much we tried to preach to people that worked for us later on was hey this is how you get better is you, you have to be yeah you have to have 
go in and have some balls and, and maintain and create relationships with these guys. Well, what if I don't like, don't care. You have to build relationships with these guys because they are the product. That's what makes them so good. They are the product. Well, I've got a, I got a question for both of you here. So John, we'll start with you first. Now, when you're tracking down the players, did any ever turn you down and Scrat, I'll just rethink this story. You actually have a Calgary story about going to do an interview between periods that got pulled away by one of your favorite coaches. And you can tell that story after the fact, John. Oh yeah. There was, there was always, there was always players that would, would, uh, stiff you. Uh, Boria Salming was the best probably more than anybody else. Um, cause I, Boria was, was one of those guys that used to blame the language when he taught, you know, he had, per, he spoke perfect English. Uh, but he would say, no, I, 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 it would be lost and I don't want to do it, you know? And so Boria, Boria, it's funny. I, I met Boria at the 1994 Olympic games in Lillehammer, Norway. Uh, and he was the friendliest guy in the world and would talk, would talk your ear off in English. And I, I turned to him, I says, you know, when you were a player, you were a pain in the butt. <laughs> he was, and he was the most difficult to get all the time in. There was a couple of other guys, but uh, there. Most of the time, once you once you created a relationship with them, people people would endear themselves and 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 want to help you as much as you would want to help them. Script. Well, it's funny because in Calgary we're playing in Calgary, and I had asked. Uh, well, Mike Keenan was my coach in Chicago, and I had forty three goals a year before that year. When he came in, I couldn't play anymore, according to him. So I just played a power play and stand in front of the net. Anyway, I, I had a meeting with him and I said, give me five games, Mike. Play me regular, play me on the power play. If you don't like what you see, then do whatever the hell you want. So he said, okay. So anyway, we played in Edmonton one night and I think I had a goal and an assist. We won the game. We're in the airport. We're flying to Calgary for, the, for a game the next night on a Saturday night. And he says, great game and everything. So we get to Calgary. Anyway, I don't know what the process was, but I know they would talk to the coach probably first, say, could we have this player between periods? So then they came to me and said, would you be able to come on after the first period? I said, yeah, sure, no problem. So anyway, first period starts. I get one shift. That's it. I don't get another shift the rest of the period. So I'm going in. I throw my stick and gloves in the room and I'm the guy's there with the towel and a glass of water. <laughs> and Mike walks up. He says, where are you going? I said, well, I have to go do that interview uh, for the first intermission. He goes, sir, is a guy with the towel. And he says, he says, you're not putting this guy on TV. Let me get you someone who wants to play this goddamn game. He said, not this floater. <laughs> and I'm standing there and I'm like, Okay, do I grab him by the throat? Do I punch him in the face? What do I do? I'm just like, I don't know what to do. I'm just like rattled. Finally, I just walked into the room, slammed the door, and that, that was it. I didn't go on uh, the interview. Yeah. Well, you know, it, 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 the, 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 the whole concept of, of the player interviews between periods has, has changed, but uh, the reality of – doing them was if the team was down three, nothing, you was, there was very good, very, very little chance you were going to get a player period. And so you always had to prepare. You always had to say, if it got to two, nothing, then it was in the back of your mind. Oh my God, if it goes to three, nothing, and we're supposed to get a player from the guy, the team that hasn't scored, we better plan not to have anything. Uh, and I would tell you 50% of the time we got nothing in those scenarios. So. Now, John, um, uh, just besides situations like that, address maybe some of the challenges that were current a broadcast that we, the viewing the audience, wouldn't be aware of. Well, you know, the 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 key thing, Mike, is that uh, you know, and I've I, I'm a, I repeat this tons of times when I talk to people is is that you know because I'm in television and I do hockey doesn't mean I have great eyesight because uh, mm -hmm. I can't see the puck either. Um, you know, the only people that can see the puck, if you're in the building, you have a better chance of seeing the puck. Difficult to see the puck, even in HD, uh, on, on, on television. Um, but, but to understand that hockey as a business, when you're in television, hockey is a game of flow. 
if you understand that hockey's a game of flow, it's where the players are going. It's not where the puck is going, but where the players are going, then the cameramen can solve that problem. Um, you know, the, the biggest issue is, is I, I, I think right now in, in, in television that we're, we're going through a cycle where um, I, I think that people don't necessarily understand where and when to start replays, you know, and, and how, to, how to tell the story of why a play occurred. Uh, but I think that's cyclical. And I think it, it goes, you know, that the, there's been a, a ton of people in the business that are in, the, in their 50s and 60s now that are retiring, uh, that uh, have uh, done their duty to the game. And now that it's the 20 year olds, the guys that went in the late seventies and eighties, like I was, um, that are learning the craft uh, and you do learn the craft and it does take time. Uh, and, but from, you know, the, I mean, the sound is so good. Now there's a good picture. Let me, let me just tell you that. So that is, uh, that's at Maple Leaf Gardens. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is, uh, Shirelli Najak, who, uh, used to be, who followed me a few people later as the executive producer. He's the one, uh, far right. Karen Sebest is the public, uh, the uh, AD of uh, far left. That's Mark Askin's head. You can see at the back there and Tim Rollhole, who's our switcher. That was a typical Saturday night at Maple Leaf Gardens on a Saturday. We didn't have a studio show. Everything was done out of the gardens mobile. Uh, and I'm probably on the phone with uh, Eddie Milliken, who's the producer in Montreal at the time. And we're trying to coordinate between games. So uh, that that happened uh, on a constant basis on a Saturday night, wherever. And we used to call it the circus. So the circus was wherever Ron and Don were. Uh, and so where's the circus? Cause Ron would have to host the show and Ron would have to close the show. So the, there was a lot more technical equipment involved mm-hmm. and there was Don and Don was more involved. Uh, so we, we called that the circus. So where's the circus this week? Well, the circus is in Edmonton. Okay. So the, that means we all get on a plane and go to Edmonton and do everything for two days in Edmonton or the circus was in Toronto. The circus was, it was in Montreal. So mm-hmm. that, that, that small group of people understood how hockey in Canada got cut and pasted together on a regular basis. Uh, and we did that for, uh, well, we did it for the seven years that I was there as executive producer. Well, you touched on him, Don wow. Cherry. He became a household name, obviously, yep. but he wasn't a slam dunk to put on the air at the beginning. How did that all occur in, when you were watching this all develop, what were you thinking as it was all going on in transfer? Well, so, so here's the interesting thing, Mike, is that um, in in those days, I mean, prior to 1995, we didn't have a doubleheader on Saturday nights. It was a single game. That's right. Uh, and it was, it, by, by the time we got into the 80s, it usually was uh, a Montreal game, a Toronto game, and or a game in the West, Winnipeg, Calgary, Edmonton, Vancouver. Uh, I usually did 99% of the time I did the game in the West. Well, we didn't have Don Cherry in those days. Don Cherry was on the air on the Toronto game. We had Howie. Howie Meeker was our guy for the intermissions. Uh, And only when Howie left in 1987 did uh, Don really go national. Even though Coach's mm-hmm. Corner was there and Coach's Corner got used in the playoffs on a, on a, on a national yep. basis once in a while, there's a lot of nights on, on in between 80, 1980 and 1986 that Don was never seen in Western Canada. It was Howie Meeker's time to sh- uh, turn to shine. Well, you started the doubleheader, did you not, when you went out west? Uh, no, no, no. The double I started the doubleheader when I moved back to Toronto and, and ran Hockey Night. We, we okay. started that uh, with the lockout of 1994. Uh, that ended in January of 95, we we launched uh, a primetime game for the East and a primetime game for the West. And that's when the doubleheader started. Uh, and it, it it morphed into not just two games, but a couple of years later, it morphed into a pregame show and then two games and then a postgame show. And it's closer to what it is now with rather than six hours of content, closer to seven and a half hours of content. Well, '94, you also um, modernized that, the. Oh, sorry, sorry, Scred. You also modernized the old. No, I, I just uh, when oh, you went okay. from the from the single to the double header. Yeah. Was that a lot? Was that a big challenge, or or did you have people on the ground there that you could connect with, and everything kind of went seamlessly, or was was it a little more difficult than everybody would perceive? 
I don't, I don't, I mean, I, I look back now and I don't think it was difficult at all. Uh, I'm sure we had our foibles and we had our yeah. issues. Um, but, uh, you, you know, in, uh, by the way, that's the, I think that's the, that is, that's the stampede corral, uh, in the, in the, er, in the early 1980s, um, where the, the Calgary flames moved to and played their first four years. Uh, and the place had 7,700 seats. And it had 54-inch boards. Ricky, do you remember jumping over the boards at the corral? Oh, you almost you break broke your, your ankle. You break your ankles jump. jumping over the boards. It was almost impossible. Some guys couldn't. Some and the other way, coming, back, coming back. If you had, the, you know, I'm sure Rocky Saginaw couldn't jump over the boards to get back on the bench. So. <laughs> no, he couldn't. He couldn't. And we had the two-tiered benches. Two-tiered benches. That's right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No. Yeah. It was a great. So if you were on the back. In the back row, and they called your name. You had to jump down and then jump over the boards, and pray you almost broke your ankle every yeah. time. Oh yeah, no, no, that's that's absolutely, uh, absolutely true. So, but you, you know, when they, in this not to get too technical, um, but in the restaurant business, there are three keys to success of a restaurant, right? Location, location, location. <laughs> well, in television. There's this, it's the same thing. And it's transmission, transmission, transmission. And what that means is if you have a signal, if you have an event somewhere and you need to get it somewhere else, you better know how the satellites work. You better know how the microwave works. You better know how the, the fiber, it's fiber now. You better know how the fiber works because if they say, well, we can't do it. And I'm, you can go in and show the map and say, no, I can, there's a, there's a landline between this city and this city. We can do it. And that's really, that became the key to success of the double header was that we would, we found ways of transmitting the games back to Toronto to make it easy for the, for us to go from one game to the next. Um, and that, you know, and by the way, they did not teach any of this, that at school. We learned that the hard way, and you learned how to how to understand how to get a signal from point A to point B. That's that's the part of uh, of the television world that the viewer doesn't care about, shouldn't care about, shouldn't have to worry about, uh, but is the most in, in in essence is the most important aspect of any broadcast. Well, along that train of thought, John, just I, I want to lead into some of the innovations that were, were you were responsible for or a part of moving forward. But before we get that, playing a little bit of the devil's advocate, Hockey Night in Canada had a built-in audience with a good portion of Canada only getting a couple channels at one time. CBC was one of them, obviously. Was it frustrating at times a new idea would just quietly insert itself into the broadcast with no reaction? Because let's face it, if the game was showing, you had a guaranteed audience regardless. Yeah, no, it, it, no. What? It, I, in fact, Mike, I would tell you the exact opposite. Okay. Um, because what you couldn't do was do something so drastically different because the fans would rebel. The fans would say, you can't do that to me on Saturday night. So what you tried to do, and, it, and you, had to under, you had to understand that fan you're talking about. You had to understand what he did or she did on a Saturday night. And, and I mean, I, I, I think... One of my strengths as a production person was I couldn't think like a player. Heck, I can't even skate, boys. I've never skated in my life. Um, so one of my strengths was I thought as a viewer first. I thought of what do I like to watch? How do I like to watch it? Not how. To, I mean, if somebody said F1 in deep, my eyes roll back. I, I I don't give a shit about F1 in deep. I don't, because yeah. I don't think the guy at home, how many, you know, I don't think everybody plays the game that way. I mean, we, we've, we, we've, we've got too technical. Anyway, that's another story for another day. But yeah. so, but what I would say is that you, you, you had to make small changes to the show that over a period of time. And, and when I say a period of time, over three or four years, people would insist that nothing has changed and yet it's all changed. So you needed to be very subtle in your changes yep. so that people would accept them. I mean, there are people, I, 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 so the doubleheader was one. Everybody thinks now the doubleheader existed forever. 
Well, we, you know, we, we, it didn't, you know, it didn't, it's, it's relatively new in the, in terms of the length of, and the history of this show. Um, but for, you know, the, the, the way we program things, the, you know, this, you, you know, what we did with the satellite hot stove, um, people think it, it was on the air for 25 years. Well, it was on, it wasn't on the air for 25 years and we slowly morphed into it. Uh, to make it more credible and people would would learn to accept it and then expect it. And that's what you do when you deal with a traditional show like Hockey Night in Canada. If you do major drastic change to something like that, you are going to tick people off and you don't want to do that. Now, just the, the Hot Stove League is an example. You started that. Wasn't, no, it wasn't the Hot Stove League. Or no, the, it was just uh, called uh, the Satellite Hot Stove. Well, the the version of it you brought back during '94 yeah. during the strike, yeah, well, you showed it during the classic games, right? So, and then in '95 when it came back, you made it the satellite hot stove, right? Now talk about now how involved would you be with the talent as far as that goes, running that show and dealing with? There's obviously lots of egos going on in the air, so how would you deal with all of that, or how did you deal with all that? Rather easily. Mm-hmm. <laughs> as Ricky will tell you, they can have as big an ego as they want, but it's probably not as big as mine. You know, <laughs> I, in the end, at, at the end, and now, hey, by the way, so now that is what that is a great picture. That's obviously John Davidson on the right. And speaking of egos, that is Herb Brooks. Herb uh, Brooks, yeah. That is Herb Brooks, the, the late great Herb Brooks, who, who I had a roller coaster experience of life of uh, and egos. Um, uh, and, uh, unfo- and became lifelong friends, uh, well into our, our, uh, tumultuous relationship. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, he passed away in a car accident, but, uh, uh, Herbie and I became great friends over the years. Uh, and, and I, I view him as a, I viewed him as a, a dear friend in the end. And of course, John Davidson, uh, who's now the president of the Columbus Blue Jackets, I view as one of my closest friends. So, um, the, the, but the, 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 the thing is, um, you, when you, you know, to manage, to manage the show and to manage the egos, I, I kind of viewed it as kind of like managing players. Um, and, and so in the end you'd have to say, well, I want to do this. So I said, well, you can't because that's not what the show's about. You know, mm-hmm. we're, we're, we're going to, we're going to, we put the show first. We don't put you first. We put the show first. Uh, and somebody has to have the final hammer. And, uh, the way, the way we ran hockey night was, is that if there was a decision to be made, um, we would make it. Uh, and the one thing I would, I could assure people, and I, again, with Rick and I work together at least TV is that you may not like my decisions, but at least you got a decision and there was always a decision. And so you knew where you stood. Mm-hmm. And you knew where the show stood and you knew, and just as importantly, you knew why it occurred. And because lots of people say, well, that's because the way I want it. I didn't view it that way. I would always have to give you and justify a reason why the show would be better. So it, it, managing that, managing the people uh, like, like, like the Jim Houston's and John Davidson's. So that's 1987 on the global television network. When I got, after I got fired from hockey night, and I got hired by another company. That's the great Dan Kelly, Henry Pasilla, Doug B. Forth worked for us the, that game. That's game seven of Edmonton versus Philadelphia at the, the Northlands Coliseum. Sue, Sue Brophy. Uh, Paul Graham is, uh, is uh, just in front of Davidson to the, to the left. He's now the, the number one production person at TSN. Eugene McElhaney was a, a tech manager at CTV, or sorry, at Global. And of course, that's the great Dave Hodge on the right-hand side. And our crew was Hodge, Davidson, and Kelly. And I don't think there was a better broadcast crew ever, ever in the history of the game than Hodge, Davidson, and Kelly together. It's great. Yeah, they were uh, they were pretty darn good. I mean, <laughs> yeah, you know, even though I played, I mean, we always, you know, you'd watch uh, replays or you'd watch, you know, some nights you weren't playing and you'd be watching the game. And those guys were those guys were pretty damn good. I mean, oh, yeah. you know the one thing I, I love John Davidson and and his insights into the game. I, I thought he was excellent. In uh, now the other guys were great at calling the game and doing the intermissions, but John really did a great job of uh, uh, explaining things during the game. I thought 
Well, I think John, I think John understood the concept of why better than anybody else. And, and he also learned that he had to put it in layman's terms so that mm -hmm. whether you're, whether you're 12 years old or 82 years old, or you're a male or female, uh, and you didn't necessarily understand the game completely, you could see why something happened on the ice. And, and John um, made it, kept it simple. He was enthusiastic. Um, he had a, he had a passion and it's, it's a passion that he kept as a player, uh, a passion he kept as a broadcaster and obviously his passion in being a, in team management now too. So uh, he, he I, you know, in many ways he was, he was our version of John Madden. Uh, the way he was, he was the, the voice and face of the game, particularly in the United States for so many years. And a great person. And a great person. Yeah. He and his wife, Diana, yeah. and their two daughters are Lindsay and Ashley are just great people and a great family. Yeah. He's done a marvelous job. Well, John, the time is flying by and we got lots to talk to you about, but before we get into Leafs TV and you in front of the camera and talking, we're working with the NHL network without naming names, unless you want to. And, and we're going back to the time now, any on-air talent when they launched or started off, you thought no chance in hell this guy can make it and then does, and maybe in vice versa, the surefire guy that you thought would be a no miss, but just couldn't cut it. Well, you're not going to get the list, that second list from me. No, um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I kept that on the same, but there's a few. You, you just answered the question. <laughs> you know, uh, well, maybe, maybe the list isn't very long. Um, uh, gosh, I, I don't know, Mike, you know, the, uh, the one thing is by the time, by the time, you get to the NHL and you get to hockey night or you get to broadcasting in our country. Um, you, you know, you will, you'll have, you have been given an opportunity to, to hone your skills. So I, the, the guy that you think had no chance, I, you know, I, I don't know. I actually, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll give you one who became somebody who I didn't think had a chance to do it. And I didn't work with him very much early in his career. Uh, got to work with him a lot recently, and I, I didn't think Nick was going to be any good. I, I thought I thought Nick Kiprios was going to struggle with it. Um, I remember a friend of mine who was running running broadcasting the NHL before I did, and we talked about it, and he thought Nick was going to be really good, and I said I'm not so sure, you know. And uh, I, I I I ate my words years later because I thought Nick Kiprios became a really good broadcaster. Uh, very it worked very hard at it with the connections uh, and being able to talk to people and get information. Uh, so I would put that first list of a guy that I didn't think was going to do it, then end up being very, very good and knock our socks off. I think Nick Kipperson might be at the top of the list. Yeah, I think, uh, John, I think you're absolutely right. I, and and if, if I'm not mistaken, I mean, watching Nick, when he first started, I think he did struggle a little bit at the beginning. Oh, sure he did. He almost he got fired like after hell. the first year. Yep. He oh, thought he yeah, was and then fired. he worked like hell to become better and better. And now, like, I mean, he's one of the best. He's a good broadcaster. He, he, he's learned. I mean, let's face it. He's been broadcasting uh, as long as he's been playing the game uh, now. And so he's, mm -hmm. he's, he's done a marvelous job. He really has. Well, I was going to, well, to your point, which you made earlier, he he networked really well, and his the information he gets, he has great yeah. contacts yeah. and great networking with the players and inside the game. So that just makes it unique. He's not lazy. He does real work. No, that's right. I got a question on that, though. Like, these guys that get their – like, do they all have a certain amount of connections around the league with GMs or coaches or players where they get the – you know, you, you see all the insider things. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, where do they get those – how do they – develop those connections and how do they get those guys to give them those scoops that they bring out on TV? Cause sometimes I hear things and I go, Holy cow, somebody actually told him that. It, it, it is just it, exactly what Mike touched on. It's building relationships and, and, and it's part of the, it's part of the hockey world that there will be times that uh, I'll give you information uh, and then I will give you some information I really want you to get out there uh, as well. Mm -hmm. So it becomes a tit for tat. It becomes a, prid, a quid pro quo. Hey, so that's uh, actually that picture, the original picture of that is on my wall here. 
that is Glenn Sather night um, in uh, Edmonton when they uh, when they put Sather's uh, name uh, up in the uh, in the rafters at the old building before it, the old building. Yeah, it was in the old building. Uh, and we did a we did a show around that. It was that was a cool night. Glenn and I. Uh, Glenn's one of those guys. Uh, the first five years of uh, our relationship, uh, he couldn't stand me, and I couldn't stand him. And uh, over the last uh, over the last twenty years, he and I and, and his lovely wife Annie have become fast friends, and he's he's been a very good friend to me. Uh, oh, and I, two of my other great friends, the late great Jim Gregory and Brian Kilray, who. Uh, <laughs> I have a great respect for uh, for Killer. He's he's one of my favorite guys. We we always uh, we always always uh, we always have fun Hall of Fame week with Brian Kilray and his wife. So it's uh, there's some good pictures there. Paul's done a good job. Yes, and Glenn Glenn Dreyfus also works with Paul. They do fantastic yeah. research. And okay, effort. you give the credits. I'm going to stop giving the credits because Patrick's <laughs> head's getting too big. So. Now, uh, John, talk about uh, Leafs TV. Now, once again, this seems like a natural fit for a Leaf crazed fan base mm-hmm. but what were some of the challenges getting that started up and running well we had zero we had nothing we had a warehouse at 307 lakeshore boulevard it was an old car a car dealership if i recall uh, so we had to build from scratch at a time when technology still required you to have wires and everything it was so we we did that we did it in about eight eight or nine months um uh, and the the other thing we you know we launched a TV channel for for the Maple Leafs and we had no t we had no rights to the games because they had all been sold so we had to find a way to uh, we had to find a way to massage our way into creating relationships now albeit really good relationships because one of them was with Molson's and the other was with TSN or CBC or Sportsnet. Uh, that we we created and built relationships with these people, so that we did have a place to play uh, within the uh, within the, the the Maple Leaf world. But it was really hard, Mike, uh, early on, because people would say, "Well, why would I subscribe to you? Uh, uh, do you have games?" Well, no, but we're going to be really good. You know, we're going to have fun, and you're going to enjoy it. Now, we had what we did do is we had uh, we we cut a deal to do uh, classic games. Yes. Uh, which uh, which I think turned out very well, and if memory serves me, they still get used on the 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 2021 yeah. version of the network now. Uh, Leaf was it Leafs ne- Leafs Nation Network? Leafs Nation Network. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, which is great, uh, but we had you know we we tried everything. We tried concepts of pregame shows, postgame shows um, that I think in many ways. Um, paved the way for a lot of other networks to do the similar stuff. Uh, you know, I, I, maybe the best thing we ever did there was a thing called game in an hour where, yep. where, uh, on the, on the fly during the game, we had an editor sitting at, at a brand new technology that could put the game together. So within 30 minutes of the game ending on Leafs TV, you could watch a collapsed version of the whole game in 60 minutes. Uh, so whether you watch, we're at the game and came home, uh, we did it. We had, uh, you know, I, I, I'm one of the things I'm very proud of is um, our, our daily radio TV simulcast, uh, which was then called Leafs Lunch. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was uh, was Merrick and Bill Waters. Uh, that was a two hour radio talk show that uh, really predated what was going on on TSN radio now, a Leafs Lunch, or that was going on um, uh, with, with Hockey Central at noon which which uh, our friend Nelson Millman copied uh, at a certain point. So, uh, but that was the first one of its kind uh, that really, really made a difference. And then actually when I went to the NHL, uh, we did a similar style, style show from noon to two on the NHL network uh, out of the, uh, out of the, the NHL store uh, on, uh, on Avenue of the Americas in New York city. So there were some really good, there were some talented people, uh, you know, vibe aside. Uh, there were some talented people that got their starts that I'm proud to say got their starts at Leafs TV that are still working in the industry. Brian Duff, who's the voice of the save, the host of the Sabres, is was was uh, started with us um, there. Uh, but uh, and people made their one of our associate producers is working at ESPN and producing documentaries 
so I mean, there's 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 lots of positives out of our time at least TV. It was a very very it was a satisfying time to start from ground zero uh, and make things happen and improve people's lives and and teach people how to do quality television, uh, all within a, what I would have described as a family family environment. You know, we had barbecues every Friday outside in the parking lot uh, to make sure that everybody had at least one square meal a week. And, and we, uh, uh, it, it, of, of all the things that I did, uh, it probably doesn't get near the attention. Um, but it probably has as, as passionate a place in my heart, uh, as anything else I've done. Fantastic. Oh, John, how big was it getting the Marley games on there too? Did that, did that help the station a lot or Not really. did it really matter? No, it didn't. I mean, it, 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 this is Toronto. Um, there's only one team that matters. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there's I, only one I've team. I've said that for years. I've said that for years. Yeah. I said, yeah. You can't have a junior team in the area. You can't have an America League team yeah, because there's only one team in Toronto, yeah. a hockey team, and that's the Maple Leafs. You know, we used to – it's funny, Rick, when when uh, all the years that I've been around the game, we would point to Philadelphia and they'd say, Philadelphia is a great hockey town. Philadelphia is not a great hockey town. Philadelphia is a great Flyers town, you yeah. know, and, and St. Yeah. Louis, uh, I mean, St. Louis is a better hockey town than Philadelphia for pure and simple. When you see what's happening with minor hockey in St. Louis, Chicago is not a great hockey town. It's a good Blackhawks town. And, and what's happened yeah. in Toronto is Toronto is a good hockey town, but it's a great Maple Leafs town. Yeah. And there's That's a huge guy. difference in, in all of that. Uh, if, if you put any other team, uh, in in the Maple Leaf jersey, people would go watch it. But if you put another team in there with their own jersey, you'd only you'd only sell eight thousand seats. You know, it's it's Maple Leafs or bust. That's all it is. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Well, now I, we just got a couple minutes left here, John. But now the broadcast. Your first off, before I set you up on this one, I just want to say my view is, I'll be very candid. I I think today's broadcast lacks bite. I like to think the talent has opinions, but it seems they've been censored with fear, worry, or concern are going to upset a sponsor or somebody. I what don't buy that. Like I don't. I don't buy that. You know. No. So what's what would you like? Okay, what's wrong with the broadcast? Say why is no, it? I'm not, not going there. I'm not going there. Well, here's no. where I was going with this. I, I wanted to set this up. I was going to ask. Okay, you let me here. let me ask John in a different way. Yeah. <laughs> is there anything? Well, is there anything? Is there anything that you would do or change to make the broadcast better than they are? Not that they're bad. I'm not saying they're bad. But is there any couple of things that you might change that would make it better? Yes. And it's not giving us an answer. So I, I, here's what I'm going to I tried to. Here's, here's where I want to didn't go. I, with Ricky, it. didn't I tell you? Didn't I tell you in all those years we worked together? Don't ask questions that can end in yes or no. Don't do and that. I just did. And, and, you just, and so, yes. We just Listen, failed, we just failed here's, on 101. Here's, here's, here's the magic. Uh, first, here's, here's the key it's so subjective. You know, what, what yeah. my opinion is about what is good hockey television or what's good television is different than Rick's and different than yours, Mike. And it's different than the people that are in charge now. Uh, and, and what they and, 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 you know, the, the, the mandate that they have is different than the mandate that I, I mean, the only mandate I had was one that I created myself. I didn't, that was the magic of the job that I had. I, I, I was at, I see, this is that I was so fortunate. I was so fortunate to be at a time when I got offered the job on a, on a, on a silver platter by Alan Clark at the CBC. And he said, we need help. Oh, what do you mean you need to fix it? I, I, I literally got the fix it so I could do anything I wanted. Got it. Um, that, that's mm -hmm. not the case anymore. That's not the case anymore. Yeah. So, so it, it, there, it, it, it's it's not it's not fair to, for me to sit here and say, well, this is right or this is wrong, because it's so subjective. Again, I also went back. To, I, I I I truly believe this. Um, I I think the success of the show when I was there, if there was some, and I believe there was, um, was because I thought as a fan, 
not as a player. I, I did not think that we did, we were too inside. We were, we were doing it from the point of view of what the guy in Saskatoon on his sofa with his Molson Canadian, what was he thinking? What did he want to know? And I, 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 I would take it that I think that that's, it's not necessary hockey, but I think it, a lot of people in television don't think that way anymore. I, I think they think differently than that. And, well, John, I know, but, but I, I tell I, you what, like, 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 yeah. so, sorry, right? Like, like yeah, the Grey no, no, Cup, no. the Grey, the Grey Cup. Like, I love the Grey Cup weekend. A TSN mm-hmm. did a marvelous job, a marvelous job with the Grey Cup. Now, now, there's my. I did football for four or five years too. That's <laughs> Neil Lumsden. Uh, Neil Lumsden, the great running back of the Edmonton Eskimos. Yep. Hodge did play by yep. play. Dave Moyer was our stats guy. Jim Eady was our technical wizard. Um, and God, I looked really good there, didn't I? Oh my goodness gracious. <laughs> anyway, so, uh, so, but I, I love, but TSN this weekend, I will tell you right now what they did for their pregame show from one o'clock to six 30. That was good old fashioned sports television. It was magnificent. They did a marvelous job of telling simple stories and getting you prepared for mm-hmm. a football game. Um, and you know, that's, that's something that, uh, I think a lot of people could, could, uh, watch and enjoy and, and just, and, and feel part of great cup weekend. And that, what, that, that made it exciting. Well, where I was going to go with that comment before I wasn't trying to ambush you. What I was trying to do was I was leading into, and by the way, I believe this about all sports because of today's social media, the, the information is so accessible and it's, I mean, the, the remember the days you wouldn't even know who Squibbin you're playing. You wouldn't even know who's in the lineup till you know seven o'clock that night. Now the players step out of the dressing room at ten o'clock in the morning, and everything's being relayed to the to everybody in the public. They know everything. So, yeah. you know, to come up with something fresh is is really difficult. So I was going to refer to the Manning brothers Monday night football call, yeah. where they sit and watch the game as two fans, but with obviously big names. Could you see the NHL going to something like that at some point? I think they'll. I, I I do think they'll try it on an alternate channel. I, I think it'll happen. Uh, but the but let's let's give credit where credit is due. Mm-hmm. Peyton Manning is a media master. This guy, uh, he I would watch Peyton Manning tell me about how to make spaghetti. Yeah. <laughs> and 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 Peyton Manning. I mean, if it was Eli and 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 Archie doing it, it probably wouldn't be very good. No, but Peyton Manning makes it because Peyton. Man- I mean, Peyton Manning has nothing to lose. Peyton Manning can say, "Well, they didn't make the right play there," and it's not as if the guy who is going to get criticized is going to say, "Well, who the hell are you? What do you? Th- what do you, what do you know, Peyton?" You know, and so so the magic of it is Peyton Manning's ability to speak freely without yep. consequences. That's where I was going with this. Absolutely. Without consequences. The other thing is uh, football is more in tune with the stop start. Because it's slower. Yes. Wow. Well, for, yeah. There's 40 seconds between plays. Yeah. 40 seconds. So, uh, you know, I, you know, and by the way, Steve Dangle, Steve Dangle, it's on YouTube every Saturday yes, night. I, I yeah, yeah. Steve Dangle does a, a really good job by himself. Uh, that's the closest thing we have in our country. I think Steve yeah. Dangle does a, a really good job for that diehard Leaf fan. Uh, he does a, a, an excellent job of, and and I don't necessarily agree with everything he says, but I watch every once in a while and enjoy it and and watch the game and and go from there. But and there's lots of people that that's how they watch the game now. You know, so it, to me, I think I think they've already tried to do it. Yeah. But uh, I, I can see somewhere along the line it happening again. But it's all the chemistry of the people on the screen, and and the chemistry mm-hmm. that Peyton and Eli have together is magnificent. I, I was just using them as the example, but even like TNT and ESPN, the TNT I've watched a little bit more. You can see they're trying to step outside a little bit to make it a little bit more funkier and a little bit more upbeat, and you know a lot of kibitzing on the air and miking up the players in the warm-up. Well, hey, listen, Hockey Night in Canada, Hockey Night in Canada did that 15 years ago. Come on. Hockey Night in Canada had a mic and an IFB on a player in a warm-up 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. It's not new. 
Well, yeah, everything get, everything gets reinvented and and credited, yep. you know. Hey, listen, satellite hot stove wasn't new. I just stole it from <laughs> Elmer Ferguson and you know and all those guys in the fifties when it was a real hot stove and sitting on chairs. I just we just used technology to make it work. Squid, you got a final one for John before we let him go? No, other than uh, when you look back at Leafs TV and how you had that. Only that amount of time to build that thing in that building <laughs> is incredible. And I tell you what, I had a blast there working with Glenn Healy and Andy Petrillo and yourself. And, oh, gosh, I can't even remember who else was there. My memory's not as good as yours. Uh, but there was a lot of great people that worked there, and it was a lot of fun. We were and the Brian uh, we, Duff we were, was we, very good. We were the little engine that could. <laughs> we were the little yeah. engine that could. And we had to find a niche, Rick. We had to find a niche. So, I mean, I, rem I remember we we did one thing in, in the, and we had access to things. We had the leaf dressing room at our, yeah. our at our disposal. We we did a two hour doc uh, talk show, a two hour talk show one day called the Goaltenders Union, and we found a leaf goalie from eight generations, eight different decades of goaltenders, and they all brought their equipment in, and 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 we made a TV show out of it. And and somebody would say, well, how'd you do it? Because we could. You know, because we could. Pat Quinn, uh, Pat Quinn saved our bacon so many nights when he would go on his press conference for 43 minutes. That was our best programming on post yeah. was Pat Quinn's press conference. <laughs> you know? Well, John, uh, they, they were legendary. <laughs> and he, then, he, then, he, then I'd, I'd walk, be walking through the building at about two in the morning and Pat would walk up to me. He says, how'd we do tonight, Johnny? All right. Hey, Pat, you saved our bacon one more time. Okay. I'll save something for Saturday. <laughs> well, John, listen, we want to thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, you were great, very insightful, some great thoughts, and uh, congratulations on a great career. And you're going forward, actually. So keep uh, it going. Hey, listen, it's not over yet, man. Come I on, said you're no. going. Yeah. Uh, it's not over yet. <laughs> There's the thumbs up. So that is, uh, that's in Prince Edward Island. Uh, when we did, oh. uh, that's in Prince Edward, no, sorry, Cape Breton Island, Cape Breton Island, when we were doing the Wayne Gretzky and Friends Golf Tournament in the summer of 2000, uh, and I had been fired as the executive producer of Hockey Night Canada about a week before. So. You should have been oh. a drink in your hand. <laughs> it was in the other hand. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> All righty, Johnny. Well, listen, thanks for joining us and uh, all the best in the future. Have a great day. And uh, listen, it's not that far away from Christmas when we're recording. So uh, Merry Christmas and uh, Happy New Year. Happy Holidays, everybody.